As a change maker, you're dedicated to making a positive difference in the world. You love what you do and you're good at it. But here's the thing, with all the things on your plate, you may struggle with finding the right balance between work and having a fulfilling personal life. And as the world becomes more complex, it may seem change, disruption, and uncertainty have become new norms in your life and work. But it doesn't have to be this way. I'm Miko Marquette Whitlock, and I'm on a mission to help change makers like you improve your well being while increasing your well doing and changing the world without burning out. In every episode, my intention is simple to share practical wisdom about the inner and the outer work required to take care of yourself while building a better world, especially when it feels like work doesn't love you back. So let's get started. I am joined today by Jason Shim. He is the Chief Digital Officer of the Canadian Center for Nonprofit Digital Resilience, also known as Cinder. And he is an experienced nonprofit professional, and he provides help to organizations that are looking to stay ahead of the technology curve. He has successfully championed organization-wide digital-first approaches and has developed and implemented strategies that support operations, marketing, fundraising, as well as program delivery. He's also a respected educator. So he has a passion when it comes to this intersection of nonprofit work and digital technology of empowering others to understand the power and the potential of digital technology. He's also been recognized for his work over the years, including being recognized for an award for his contributions to the nonprofit technology community through Inten or the Nonprofit Technology Network, among a host of other awards and recognitions. So with that being said, Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. And I am excited to have you here. And so we're going to go ahead and dive into the conversation here. I know that I've given people a brief sketch of who you are based on the formal bio, but I love to kick off these conversations just by asking a really fun and simple question, which is who is Jason? And what do you want the folks who are listening to this conversation to know about you? Yeah. So I'll start with a story from my high school days, and it's happened in the ninth grade. And so I was sitting in geography class, and I remember very distinctly, it was the first period, first thing in the morning. And you know those little agendas that you, they hand out that you put in all the your day-to-day -day tasks and things? Yes. And so this particular agenda had a prompt, and I remember reading it, and it said, what is your dream? And... I remember sitting there like, mulling it over and eventually wrote down that my dream is to help others fulfill their dreams. And for some reason, it stuck. I, I still have that agenda today stored somewhere in, in, in deep storage, but I came back to it many times over the years. And I think that that statement has been very much driving force for much of my life and where it's taken me. More broadly, who is Jason Chim? I'm passionate about exploring possibilities of how technology can be a force for good. And along that thread of helping others fulfill their dreams, I've spent much of my life at the career, in my career at the intersection of nonprofits and technology. And that's where I've occupied a lot of my, my, my life bandwidth. I would say I'm also insatiably curious, constantly reading, learning, or tinkering to better understand how stuff works. So that sometimes can take the form of bringing home random electronics or things that I find that people have left out on the sidewalk and sometimes bringing it home to see if I can make it better, fix it up, and then also passing it along. So that's, yeah, that's a, a brief overview of who I am and how I, how I move through the world. And there you have it. So someone who is passionate about helping others fulfill their dreams. And it sounds like you've done a lot of this, most of your career using technology in the nonprofit space to help folks do that to advance missions. And it sounds like there's also an insatiable curiosity about the world how, and how things work. And I can see the thread already between all three of those things in terms of how they have shown up, at least in terms of the work that I know you for. And so I'm, I'm, I'm excited to really thread those needles there. So why don't we start at the beginning? 
of the journey, maybe one of the starting points for your professional journey. And let's talk about your first real job that you ever had, if you can remember what that was. And however you are defining the words real, we can put that in quotation marks. Can you take us back to that first real job that you had? Yeah. So my, my first real job, and I, I define that as my, my first full-time job after I finished university, was uh, in a role as uh, a community content producer at uh, an organization called the Center for International Governance and Innovation. And so the role of the community content producer was one in which I would help to manage online communities. There was a technical component to it uh, as well, helping to build the websites, working on integrations, forums. This is dating myself, but when Twitter first came to testing that and posting about what was going on and such. And I learned a lot in that role and it was a fascinating place to be because it was in that role. So the organization was focused on global governance policy. And up until that point, I that wasn't an area that I was particularly super familiar with at the time. And being in that space helped me really appreciate the role that governance and policy plays in large systemic change. And in particular, I remember being fascinated by the projects around the data re residency and governance, which are being, which are one of the topics that were being discussed at, at the time. And that was actually my my first introduction to N10 as well. Uh, and I'm grateful that through that job, I had the opportunity um, through uh, uh, professional development to attend uh, the Nonprofit Technology Conference, or NTC, and met a whole you know, new network of, of people and learned a lot uh, in that regard. And, and so that, that first job was one that I, it was insightful to me too, because it was my first introduction to office culture. And... I grew up in a household where my, my father is an electrician and I was used to going to work with him during the summers and fetching tools from the, the truck and being on site and learning about the basics of wiring and, and things like that and learning about how things operated in an office was a lot of learning for me. I remember at the time, one, one particular story that I'll share is I remember going to work <clears throat> and one of my colleagues nudged me and was like, hey, you're wearing white socks. And I'm like, yeah, so I'm wearing socks. That, that should be fine. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, but you're wearing like black shoes and white socks and dark pants. And honestly, at the time, I didn't see anything wrong with that. Like that was a perfectly normal thing for me where it's, it's you're wearing the essentials. You have the pants, the socks and the shoes. Okay. <laughs> and it was that additional layer of knowledge that, you know, it, it I didn't really notice that it's, oh, yeah, typically dark shoes and dark socks. And I was like, oh, okay, thanks for the heads up on that. So it was those small little unspoken things. But like up until that point, I typically read a lot before preparing for a job and everything. But at that time, I, I hadn't encountered any anything that was written down about when places talked about dress code. They, they were talked about wearing nice a nice pair of slacks or something and a button-up shirt. But I don't recall wearing, reading anything that said that you dark socks and dark shoes. So it is for me also an introduction to the some of the unspoken rules of workplaces yes. too. And and I remember those first few months were uh, a bit of a crash course in, in that regard about learning all, about all the conventions that are expected, but not necessarily explicitly explained. But overall, as far as first jobs go, I, I think I had a great experience there, uh, formed a lot of lifelong friendships there. I still keep in touch with many of the folks that I, I met uh, during that role. Awesome. So you had a crash course into office culture, having come from a different type of work in terms of the work you, you were doing, tagging along with your father as he was doing his electrician jobs. And I can see the thread in terms of uh, the curiosity piece in terms of how things work and how you were able to experience that in the work you did with your father on the with in a tangible way with actual things and wires, for example. And then it sounds like you took that into your first real job, which was an office job in terms of understanding the ins and outs of spoken and unspoken workplace culture. And I think that is, it's such a fascinating story because I think it, it really underscores some of the, the ways in which we create inequities. And, and I guess in some ways, perhaps 
unintentionally perpetuate those inequities without even realizing it. So I think that's a really powerful story. So I appreciate you sharing that. So why don't we bring it forward to what you're doing now? So you move from governance policy and you said content creation. Is that what you were doing? Management? Yeah. Okay. So you, you move from content creation, content management in the area of policy and governance. And was this a nonprofit organization? Yes. Okay, at, in the nonprofit space to the work that you're doing now as chief digital officer. So can you describe your current role and what are you able to share about what the organization actually does? Because it sounds like a mouthful. Yeah, so in my role as a chief digital officer of the Canadian Center for Nonprofit Digital Resilience, or, or CINDER, uh, so the organization is focused on growing a digitally enabled uh, nonprofit sector uh, where Canada's nonprofits uh, can use data and technology to advance their mission and multiply their impact. So in my role, I serve in a variety of different capacities. And uh, so one of the hats that I wear is certainly around acting as a technical lead for uh, some of the projects in which we're bringing folks together to prototype solutions around how we can address sector level issues. So more concretely, it's when we look at some of the issues that are facing the nonprofit sector with regards to nonprofit, like uh, technology kinds of uh, issues, that we act as an organization that can bring folks together and really convene around identifying what are some of the, the themes or the core issues that are happening and bringing the resources to bear around it. And when some of the solutions may necessitate a technical solution. That's where I come in and with my experience in deploying things on the tech side and managing that part. It's as part of the prototyping process, potentially building out you know, some of those MVPs or scoping out what could that look like. Here's the problems that presents and the awareness of what technologies are out there as well. You know, what technologies uh, can potentially fit the the issues uh, that are brought forward or what sometimes the inverse, what what should we you know not use to explore them? It's really providing like a national level lens for sectoral issues that are identified all in the service of helping nonprofits use data and tech better to advance their missions. Excellent. And so uh, in terms of the type of organization, is this a government organization? Is it a nonprofit? Like where does it sit in terms of the ecosystem of organizations? So it's it's a nonprofit, and it's 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 a project that is currently operating as a, a fiscal sponsor, and yeah, we it's it was brought together by many individuals and co-founder organizations as well. So definitely, there's not just an organization unto itself, but many other partner organizations that have been involved in uh, the creation and advancing the the work that we do. Excellent. So it sounds like you have taken this desire and this energy that you have around helping other folks fulfill their mission and fulfill their dreams. And you put it on steroids because now you're operating at a national level where you all can put in place, at least from, from your role in terms of the digital piece, um, using digital technology and data to really not just help one organization, but to really help organizations across Canada. And so I'm wondering if you could very briefly give us a concrete example. So for folks that aren't techies, folks that aren't data folks, maybe you just had a bunch of gibberish. And so they're wondering, okay, that sounds nice and fancy, but what does that actually mean in terms of day-to-day? So if I'm working in a nonprofit organization in Canada, what are some ways that I could potentially benefit? Can you give us an example? Yeah. So in, in terms of the, the organization itself, one of the ways is uh, that if you, if you sign up to be a part of the uh, kind of broader network uh, for the organization, that there are uh, events that are hosted where folks are invited to uh, come and participate to to learn more about all the, the various uh, projects that we're working on and also to uh, open invitation to participate. Recently, a cybersecurity uh, report was just uh, released uh, by Cinder. 
And in the lead up to that, there was a lot of consultations uh, with organizations as well to identify, hey, what are some of the challenges and potential solutions are uh, really facing folks with regards to issues pertaining to things like cybersecurity. So th that's just one example. There are many different themes that uh, organizations are looking to address overall. So from a day-to-day -day perspective, that if folks are interested in really, folks do the day-to-day -day work, but if they're interested in contributing the knowledge that they've gained from their day-to-day -day work to share with others and also building these sector-level solutions so that they there may have been solutions that you identified in the course of your work that can also be shared more widely and and also hearing from others who are in their day-to-day -day work that may have an opportunity to cross-pollinate uh, in, in that regard. I, I would uh, certainly encourage folks uh, who are interested to check out the website at ccndr.ca and th there's an opportunity to also join and be an advisor. Excellent. So people have an opportunity to contribute. And, and to contribute to this shared knowledge base that you all are creating. And just so that folks understand more concretely, if an organization, for example, wants to, they're creating an app to, or they, they've created an app or a website that is aggregating data on a particular population, for example, as opposed to different organizations that work with the same population, duplicating that effort, is it something that like you all would facilitate, okay, hey, can we just come together and create one application and one set of data that everyone has access to? Is that the kind of thing that you all might play a role in? Yeah, it's bringing organizations together around some of those thematic areas as well. So just as you said, if there are organizations that are in a similar thematic area, say if they're serving a certain population as well, and they're all tackling a similar issue, that the, one of the things that uh, Cinder uh, does is bringing these groups together to create that space to really talk about how can we do this in a more collective effort to move this yeah. ahead. And it, it may potentially take the form of a technology-enabled solution, or sometimes it may be simply the start is having that conversation to advance uh, that, where technology is certainly one tool that can be used for it. But I think the important thing is really the act of identifying and, and bringing folks together and drawing those threads across where there's a, a common challenge that folks are looking to address. I think that's awesome. There, there are so many. So I think there's power in first of all, just convening people to share knowledge about process, what's working, what's not working, best practices, things along those lines, trends people are seeing. And then there's also power, I think, and also to share technology solutions, right? I, I think if you were to ask any organization in the social sector, what are you using for case management? What are you using for fundraising? What are you using for marketing? I'm a, you probably get like every organization would have a, a different way of responding to that, a different set of solutions for that. So I think it's wonderful that you all are bringing folks together. So lots of folks that are listening are actually in the U.S. or in other parts of the world. And are folks in other parts of the world able to tap into some of the publicly available resources that you all are producing? And then the second part of that is, are you aware of any similar types of entities in other parts of the world that folks can be able to tap into? So certainly the, the reports and things are available on our website. Anything that's on the Cinder website can be accessed globally. And in terms of additional organizations that do similar work, the the one that comes to mind would be N10 does does work in the on a global scale in, in that regard. It is hosted out of the U.S. Yeah, th th those are the, the that's the one that immediately comes to mind in, in that regard. Okay, so and that's N10, so that's um, Nonprofit Technology Network or NTEN.org for folks that are interested in learning more about that. And uh, so, full disclosure, both Jason and I have had the pleasure of serving on the board of Intent, and I believe, Jason, you're also a former um, board chair of, of Intent as well. Yeah. So as we, as we move forward, as you think about just the entirety of your career so far, is there a particular experience or project or initiative that you look back on and you're like, I'm really proud of this work and I'm really proud of how it move forward, what you said is a core to who you are, which is helping people to fulfill their dreams. Is there anything that stands out to you that you want to share with folks? 
Yeah. At a previous organization I was at, and this was a national organization that was focused on helping youth who are living in low-income communities to graduate from high school and reach their full potential, I had a chance to uh, change up the donation form on the website. And I, I know that in, in saying that in that short sentence, it's, it's a donation form on, on the website. But uh, for anyone who may have been down this road before in that the existing donation form had been there for years and years. And you know, it's the type of project that it does require a significant amount of buy-in from uh, folks because it integrates with so many things. And so when we looked through the various groups uh, throughout the organization and chatting with the fundraisers, it was that one of the pain points was, well, typically when a donation is made that we may not see it the donor managers may not be aware of it for a couple of weeks because of, or a week because of the, the reporting that it goes into finance first, and then it goes, appears in the reporting and being able to develop a workflow that it would still go through that reporting process, but having an integration that would provide a real-time update piped through into Slack. And the moment that a donation was made within a few seconds, it would just pop up in a real-time feed and allow a donor manager to reach out to someone who had been assigned to them to thank them almost immediately if they so wished. And being able to provide that that level of experience where you know you, you make a donation in, on a website and are able to get acknowledged, not just in the, the, the kind of autoresponder form, but also a personal outreach from someone that you may have cultivated a relationship with, that helped better deliver on the overall experience there. And that was just on the fundraising end. On the marketing end, there was better data reporting, uh, better overall experience for folks. And the overall experience for the person experiencing the form was that it was much smoother, much faster. It, there was integration into things like uh, uh, Google Pay and Apple Pay, which didn't uh, previously uh, exist on, on the, the, the previous form. And we, we saw a significant uptick in, in donations. And there was a significant uptick in recurring donations as well because of the, the interface that kind of encouraged that. And at the end of the day, it really meant that there was more funds to advance the mission of the organization. I, I was really proud of what we were able to accomplish as a team in, in that that implementation. And it, it continues to this day where, you know, that, that it serves as a core piece of inf infrastructure that was able to unlock a whole bunch of other possibilities. And when I think about the projects that I'm quite proud of, it's a lot of those on the surface that may present as like a, a boring infrastructure thing, but the excitement comes from the outcomes that can that can be produced as a result of that. Yes. And I, I love that for a couple of reasons. One, there are lots of folks that are listening that aren't forward facing or front facing, right? They aren't doing front facing work. They aren't doing the work that gets the recognition that we associate folks being celebrated in the public sector or nonprofit or other parts of the social sector, they aren't in those roles, right? And so I think what you're doing is giving a really concrete example of how folks that are working behind the scenes, maybe you're working in operations, but that the work that you're doing actually makes a huge difference in terms of the helping the organization meet the mission. So I think that's one really exciting thing. The other is, I think it really points to what you can do with limited resources as well. So I don't know in totality what it took for this particular project, but I had a similar experience with an organization that I work with. And what's coming to mind is the Pareto principle, right? The 80-20 rule, where if you think about, as opposed to trying to do all the things, if you realize that you have a finite amount of resources and a finite amount of time, okay, what 20% of things can we do really well that is going to yield 80% of the outcome that we want to get to, right? And it sounds like you all identified your 20%, which is, okay, if we can optimize the donation form, then this can make so much more possible. So for folks that are listening, particularly if resources are scarce, if talent is scarce, time is scarce, in the type of work that you're doing in organization in terms of how it's set up, think about that one thing or those two things that you can really focus on, that if you did those things really well, they would make a tremendous difference across the board in a really significant way. I appreciate you you sharing that. And I was also thinking too about your current role at Cinder. I think this is another example where convening folks to share an example like this, for example, 
and to share what worked and to see other people being able to actually replicate the impact that you all have made, right? Because you've already done the work, right? So theoretically, you could give someone else a roadmap and they would have to spend less time and effort uh, and resource actually getting it up and running to have a similar outcome. So I think that is so um, amazing. All right, it's time for a break. We'll be right back after a brief message from our sponsors. Changemakers like you are driven to do more and more, often with fewer and fewer resources. But there comes a breaking point where your passion dwindles under the weight of pressure, the mission suffers, and you feel like you love the work more than it loves you back. That's why I wrote the book, How to Thrive When Work Doesn't Love You Back, a practical guide for taking care of yourself while changing the world, with a forward by Beth Cantor, author of The Happy Healthy Nonprofit. This book is a succinct, practical, and action-based guide for changemakers seeking to make an impact without burnout. Learn more and order your copy at mindfulchangemaker.org slash books. That's mindfulchangemaker.org slash books. The reality is if you really want to make a difference, you must start by taking time for yourself right now because you can't change the world if you're not around long enough to make that happen. This isn't about working harder and smarter. It's about making a commitment to work differently so you can take care of yourself while making an impact for the long haul. In How to Thrive and Work Doesn't Love You Back, I share practical strategies grounded in the well-being while well-doing change framework. And I wrote this book after experiencing more than my fair share of burnout and overwhelm in the name of saving the world during my previous career in government and nonprofit work. I share what I've learned to be the most impactful strategies for my personal practice and my experience helping change makers around the world just like you create lasting balance in their lives. These are the same strategies I teach teams and organizations through my live trainings, self-paced courses, coaching programs, and tools like the Intention Planner. Each chapter has a summary of key ideas and a checklist of practices you can start implementing right away. I know you need practical strategies and resources to help you create sustained balance in your life and work so you can lower your stress level and focus on getting the important things done right now. So this book isn't about theoretical concepts. It's about what to do and how to do it. Learn more and order your copy at mindfulchangemaker.org books. That's mindfulchangemaker.org book. All right, let's get back to our conversation. So uh, let me ask you this. As we talk about your professional journey, one of the things I remind people of as we have these conversations is we know that it's not all sunshine and roses, right? That there are inevitable ups and downs on our journeys. That is a part of the beautiful challenge of life. So how do you stay inspired and motivated through those ups and downs? I think about even how long it may have taken to get this donation form optimized the way that you wanted it and testing it out and so on and so forth. Just having managed technology projects, I know that things never go 100% as you have it planned out in the project plan. So how do you stay inspired and motivated when those inevitable ups and downs come your way? Yeah, I'll answer that in two parts, uh, because I, I think that the answer has been different at various stages of my career. Uh, so the, the first part is that in the, the first job that I, I mentioned, uh, I, I worked with a, a colleague who is a, a very close friend of mine. And... I remember that the approach that I took at the time was very just uh, heads down, grind it out, and just do the work uh, all the time. And he would encourage me to take breaks. And it was something that I found challenging at the time because I, it was just something that I, I wasn't used to or, or hadn't learned how to pace myself at, at that time of my career. And there, there was one thing that he said to me that that really had an impact. And he said, the work will always be there. There will never be a shortage of work. And you can either put in that you know, extra you know, time now, or you still have to eat lunch. So come get a bowl of pho with me. And that particular conversation really had an impact uh, around just taking the time to enjoy those moments, because those are the moments that... I think helped keep me inspired and, and motivated that those being able to take a step back and enjoy the moments with friends. And now uh, I have a little one at home and I, I keep a small kind of Polaroid in my direct line of sight. So it's that, that small reminder too, where I have a 
a little baby and when I need a kind of a, a burst of inspiration, just glance up and remember that happy moment. I never used to be the type of person that had a lot of personal ephemera around my desk uh, and things, but I, I think that I've reached the stage of my life where now that that is part of what I do and who I am. Yes. And it's having those those reminders of inspiration and, and, and motivation. And again, just helps me return my focus to what's important. Yes. And thank you for sharing that. What I hear and, and what you shared are a few things that I think are really valuable. One, which is you mentioned that your strategies for staying connected, staying motivated, staying inspired have changed over the course of your career. And I think it just points to the fact that we don't necessarily have one thing that works for every season, right? We go through different seasons of life and work, which may call for different things. And it's okay to change things up. It's okay to change how you do the thing, even if it's the same thing. And the concrete examples that you gave, taking breaks, right? Very simple, right? But often we take that for granted because we're in a rush to, to do all the work. And as you mentioned, the, your, was it your mentor that, that shared with you that the work will always be there, right? There is going to be a shortage to work in. What I add to that is that if you are doing good work, there will always be a demand for what it is that you have to offer to the world. And you have to make space to nourish yourself. You have to make space to rejuvenate and to recover because we're not automatons, we're not robots. And if you don't do that, then you're not able to do the work in a sustainable way. So I love what you shared there about taking the breaks. And I also love what you shared too in terms of having the memento, right? Having the Polaroid of your little one on your desk. I have something similar. I have a picture of my family that I keep. And actually, it's one of the things I, I travel a lot in terms of living and working in different places. And it's one of the things that I take with me. I also have a a visual vision board, which includes a part of my family on it, on my tablet and on my phone. So every time I open my phone or my tablet, like it's there and it's visible. And so I love how simple and accessible those two things that you shared are. So I, I think maybe somewhat connected to this, just making a guess here, but I, I wonder if your undergraduate work in religious and cultural studies is connected to this in terms of what you shared, in terms of how you how your how your practice for staying connected and inspired has evolved. And I guess more broadly, I'm curious what impact, if at all, has that had on your professional career? Because it seems like a stark contrast between studying religion and cultural studies, and then you're now you're doing this highly technical, techie, digital stuff in the nonprofit mm -hmm. sector. So can you speak to that and the connection that's there, if there's any. Yeah. So when I when I was taking religious and cultural studies in, in university, what drew me to the this kind of line of coursework uh, and, and inquiry was really around exploring the, the human condition. And it was one particular course that I, I found quite inspiring that led me into a whole bunch of others, uh, but it was called Love and Its Myths. And it was mm. about really exploring concept of love. How do we articulate it in the stories that are, are told and deconstructing the different conceptions of it. And where that led me was I eventually wrote my undergraduate thesis on how people experience love in online environments. Mm. And in this particular case, it was Second Life, which is an online virtual world uh, that has been in existence for, I think, just over 20 years at this point now. And mm -hmm. So my specific area of focus was how do people understand the marriage ritual in, in Second Life? Because there, there was many instances of folks who would stage these very elaborate virtual weddings and building these virtual churches and or environments or where they chose to celebrate their, their marriage together. And it was through that research and work that I think really helped solidify for me that what I came away from that research with was that that second life was simply a conduit for which folks expressed their love. And the example that I grew to appreciate was when we say things like, I love you over the, the phone, that we don't necessarily question its meaningfulness because it, it's a very common way of expressing it over a mode of communication and same with Zoom calls and such. 
And so the, the argument that I was exploring was what's different about this virtual space that if everything is socially constructed and people are choosing to live in this particular embodiment of their human experience, that who are we to judge or to say that this this is not authentic to, to the people who are participating in this, like this is authentic, this is their lived reality. And so when spending a lot of time thinking about those things, like I, my, my thoughts have often returned there over the years, because when we think about building things like online experiences, or how do we construct these kind of multimodal type experiences for engaging with folks on our, in the missions of our nonprofits, that a lot of things are online now as well. And this debate sometimes about, is it better than, or is it less than? And no, maybe it's really part of, I think, a broader mosaic of how we construct and define meaning and really set the intentionality of it where I've been involved in some groups where I have not met any of the folks in real life necessarily, but the relationships and the conversations feel just as real or it's it's just as meaningful as some quote-unquote real-life interactions. And yeah, the the work that I did as part of my studies, that, that research and broader kind of explorations around big questions around what is what is the real, what is the true, what is beautiful, and all those things have, have factored in over the years when considering things like how do we use technology to deliver better outcomes and better experiences for folks. Yes, and I'm seeing that the thread here to what you said earlier, which is in terms of who you are at core, part of it is you have this insatiable curiosity about the world and how things work. And when I bring this forward to what you just shared about your undergraduate studies in religious and cultural studies and what you wrote your thesis on, right? So you you took that curiosity to explore there's a, a technological aspect of it, right? But I also see a little bit too of helping people to fulfill their dreams, right? I feel like that's the love piece, right? And that's like the, what I would describe as love in action, if you will. The work that you're doing is a form of love in action because uh, I believe that love is a, is a verb, right? And I find that so fascinating. So that's one aspect of it that really stands out to me. Many people have about placing a different value on connection and experience based on the modality, right? Based on whether we are in person or based on whether it's facilitated via phone or Zoom or some other some other tool or, or platform. And in the midst of this post-pandemic world we find ourselves in, we find ourselves having the same conversation, right? You can we see it play out on a larger scale in terms of how government agencies and how companies and nonprofits are thinking about what does the workplace look like and what does it mean to bring people together. And there seems to be like this either or, right? That on the one hand, there's this idea that hybrid and remote are competing with in-person and in-person you can't replace, right? You hear that. There's no substitute for in-person and hybrid and remote is just not good enough. And what I hear you saying is that it's not an either or, it's not a comparison, it's a recognition of what is, right? This is that these are ways, these are different ways of showing up and being present. And to your point about having had connections and relationships with folks that you haven't met in person. I've had a similar experience even before the pandemic. One of my roles when I worked in the federal government here in the US. I worked with contractors all over the country and our primary basis for, for connection was simply by phone. This was before video chat and Zoom became a really big thing. We would have conference calls and phone calls and I only knew them by voice or by email. I have, even with my current work, I have one partner that I work with that I've only met one time in person and we worked together for many years before, before that happened. And I think we had one initial phone call, but other than that, all of our communication has been through email. But nonetheless, it's still been a fruitful connection in terms of the type of work that we're doing together. I don't know, do you have more to say, to share about that in terms of 
bringing what you shared forward in terms of how you think about that in today's context when we talk about hybrid, remote, and in-person and this mosaic that you described? Yeah, I I think that there's no one-size-fits-all solution. And going back to the 80-20 for Pareto principle that you mentioned, I, I think when we really delve into, let's assume that 20% of the actions in any given organization are going to drive 80% of the connections or that the feeling of a closeness, I, I think it's more the, the process that's important. It's by simply jumping to, okay, the model or the solution itself, it's, I think it's more important to, to take a look at, hey, what are those things that really help our, our organization function really well? And what do we want to focus on? Uh, because I think there are certainly examples of organizations that have done remote really well. There are organizations that have done hybrid really well or in-person really well. But at the end of the day, it's really more about what works for that particular organization or group of people. And and so I think that sometimes it's certainly faster to simply apply like a, a preset model to things in, in, for, in the name of expeditiousness, but it's the identifying what needs to be done, I think takes a, a little bit more time and really figuring out what are those things. And I think that when folks really take the time to think about what are those particular actions that make people feel really connected, I think that's where the magic is. Like when, when we think about what are the day-to-day -day things that give us energy, when you're speaking earlier about the recharging and, and rejuvenating, what are the 20% of actions that we take that give us 80% of our energy? And I, I think when sitting with some of those broader questions, that's where it can yield some significant insights uh, about you know, not only organizations, but our in individual lives too, where there are some likely uh, very high impact things that are just waiting to be uncovered or to be focused on a bit more to have more impact. But it sometimes could be in front of us too. It's just requires a little bit of process or analysis to put it into action. Yes, I love that. So and I, I, what I heard you say is that the magic is in the connectedness. The magic is in the sense of belonging that we have and the process that we use to get there is secondary, it sounds. And uh, one of the ways that I think about this is think about it in terms of organizational culture. So your organization or culture consists of your mission or your why, like why you do the work thing. What is the shared mission that you all have and what brings you together to, to do the work? And we know that tends to be very strong in the social sector that lots of people are driven to do the work they're doing because there's a strong overarching mission for the organization or for the work that they're doing. But then there are also the, the rituals, right? And in terms of how we do certain things, how we have meetings, how we celebrate people when there's an anniversary or when there is, you mentioned having a little one. So when someone has a, welcomes a new child into the world, how do we celebrate that? How do we recognize that? And then also our values, right? How do we treat uh, one another? How do we disagree, right? How do we have conversation? How do we problem solve together? And one of the things I remind organizations about is that some of those things we took for granted before the pandemic, right? Because we, to your point, we fell into what was expedient, right? And, and what we already knew. And part of the challenge with hybrid and remote work for many organizations, it's not so much the technology piece, that's certainly one aspect of it. But there's the thing of, okay, how do we bring what we took for granted over into a hybrid and remote way, right? How do we bring that mission? How do we bring those rituals? How do we bring that the way that we treat each other, how do we disagree and problem solve when there are different things we have to take into account when we're hybrid and remote. So I appreciate you you sharing that. If, if I can jump in want... with the... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you, you mentioned rituals and that, that just brought a memory that I, I would love to share around. We, when I was working in an organization, there was a lot of projects that we had to get out the door and... I, one of my favorite courses that I had taken was ritual studies. And every time a project was completed, I picked up a, a container of marbles and, and a, a little kind of vase type thing. And every time a project was completed, myself and my, my colleague, we would ceremoniously make a big spectacle of it and take a marble and drop it into the vase with a satisfying clunk and then have a, a high five moments like, yes. 
And it, it was a silly little thing that we did just between the two of us to mark the occasion. But it was also that physical manifestation of that visual representation of the work that we had done and knowing that there was that small little celebratory moment every time we finished the project and over the course of a year that pause fills up and it becomes this living artifact of the work that had been completed and it became something to quite look forward to. Absolutely. I, I think the the opportunity that we have with this new world that we live in is to figure out how we can create new rituals. How how can we expand on the ones that we have? And I'm just really marinating right now on this idea that there is no hierarchy between the different ways we show up, right? They simply are options that we have available to us. They're not competitors, right? They're simply options that are available to us. And to your point, there's no one size fits all. There isn't, there's no one right way to, to do it. The only right way I think about this is, and I tell folks, the only right way to do it is the way that works for you. <laughs> and that's the right way. And that might change what, what works for you now might change over time, right? Based on the season of life and work that you find yourself in. And so speaking of seasons of life and work and really balancing this new world that we're in, where we are, for some of us, balancing between hybrid and remote, as well as in-person and really just adapting to this new world of more uncertainty than perhaps we've collectively experienced before. How do you balance that with who you are when you're with your little one, when you're with your family, when you're doing the things that you love to do outside of your professional work and identity? And I'll frame it as work-life balance because that is the, I think that's a shared language that we understand, even if we don't agree with that framing or have a different way of thinking about it. So how, how do you approach this particular aspect of life and work? Yeah, I am a, a big fan of time blocking at this current stage in my life, <laughs> and I have um, a lot and of what, time what is time blocking for folks that are interested oh, yes. in knowing more about that? So it's uh, really just blocking off time in your calendar to to do specific things. I think before I started using time blocking, there would be a, a general kind of list of tasks that I would need to get accomplished in any given week. And with time blocking, like you're actually taking a task or a recurring task and blocking off time to complete that thing. And it gives a much better sense of what you actually have time and space to do and makes it easier to reconcile if there simply isn't enough time in the foreseeable future to do a thing that it that the priorities may need to shift. And so what that looks like for me is that I have a dinner time block and that is something that is that doesn't change because I have to eat <laughs> and yes. so does my family. And because I quite enjoy cooking, I I have to make sure that I abide by that time block because you know, if I don't, then that means that my family eats later <laughs> and with a little <laughs> baby and everything that you want to make sure that we, I'm leaving enough time to cook dinner, get it served, all the cleanup and things. And making that time for bath time and story time and those things. And I think what helps keep me on track for that is just the awareness and the reminder that there's a finite amount of baths and story times that I'll have available to me to enjoy together as a family. And I think what also really hits home is that I there's this chart that you may have seen that indicates the amount of time that one spends with their parents through their through the lifetime. And I think between the ages of zero to 18 or something is that I forget the exact number, but it's something to the, like you, you will have spent something like 90% of your time together with your parents between those ages. And then the rest of life is that the remaining kind of 10%. And so I, I think in, in terms of balancing those things, yeah, it's a lot of time blocking and really trying to stick to it the best I can. And the motivation is the awareness of that, that very finite amount of time <laughs> that I have. Yes. And so it sounds like there on the front end, there are some priorities that it's there. So the notification of what your priorities are, right? Based on the motivation that you described, right? You mentioned okay, have a finite amount of bath times and story time. And so that's going to be a priority. But when you're prioritizing, the way that I describe it is you're saying yes to one thing. So you have to say no to something else if you have more things than you have time for. So how do you decide 
what you're going to say no to and how do you deal with what are sometimes the the hard trade-offs or sometimes they're hard trade-offs sometimes there's disappointments how do you manage that as you're prioritizing the things that are important in the moment but there are other things that as a consequence don't get down or they get down later yeah i i think that there's certainly the occasions when we need like a a one-off type thing where something's come up that needs to be attended to and when a time block needs to be reshuffled because something urgent has come up certainly However, I think it's important to pay attention to the bigger picture of what is it that you're trying to achieve longer term or collectively as a family as well. And I think it's also the awareness that you, you know, if I miss too many of those dinner times, that will have an impact on the relationship that I have with my family. And I think I often return back to the, the concept of opportunity cost. I used to work at an economics camp in a previous life. And the concept of opportunity cost being what is the next best thing. So if you weren't doing this particular thing at this moment in time, what would the next best thing be? And I think for me, that has helped bring a lot of clarity around. It's not a question of what are all the things that I could be doing with this hour or half hour or whatever the time block is. It's examining that question of what is the next best thing that I could be doing with this time. And to, to go back to your question of how how to prioritize it, I, I, I think that really goes back to a question of values and a, a, an exercise that uh, I found really helpful many years ago was I was working with a coach and is really getting clear on what values I wanted to live my life by and really regarding that as the prism for which I shine the the light of action through. I think that it's constantly looking at and evaluating when you shine that light of action through that values prism, how well does it compare to the projected ideal with what's happening in the here and now? And those constant kind of readjustments for looking at what needs to be reprioritized to get closer to that ideal. And it's a work in progress. And that's why it is an ideal that it's something to shoot for. And I try not to beat myself up over some of the inevitable shortcomings and that arise along the way. But I think what's more important is that forward movement and progression towards, towards that. Yeah. And I think that's really important what you shared in terms of recognizing that it's not going to be perfect and that you're not going to always get it 100% right, but to stay really focused on what those core values are and being flexible and agile enough to make those adjustments. And one of the ways for folks that are listening that you can make those adjustments is sometimes we don't always have control over our schedule, especially depending on the type of role or what level you are in your organization or the type of work that you're doing. But I think this is where consistent open communication comes into play. And I think at an organizational level, going back to what we talked about in terms of organizational culture, does your organization have a culture where you are clear about your values, you're clear about your priorities at an organizational level, and you give people permission and autonomy to adjust their work accordingly, right? And you have a, a healthy culture where you are you're in constant communication, right? And you have a, a process of healthy conflict, right? And, and healthy negotiation of, of boundaries. So I appreciate you sharing that and reminding, reminding me about that particular point when it comes to organizational culture, because we're, many of us are doing this context in that particular, that particular frame. Let me ask you this as we begin to, to wrap up here yeah, about our work together. So we have, um, worked together over a number of years as colleagues. We mentioned earlier at the board level for Intin, um, the Nonprofit Technology Network, and we have also um, co-presented uh, a number of times on topics related to technology and how you, you can use it to really advance the mission in the social sector. And I'm curious if you can speak to the impact of that work that you've seen, anything that you might have experienced personally in terms of ahas, in terms of our work together. And I also know that you use the intention planner. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that and 
any impact, if at all, um, yeah. that you experienced as a result of that. Yeah, I'll start with serving on the board with you together. Is that I, I really enjoyed serving with you on, on the N10 board, and I've served on a number of boards, and I, I think that the the experience of serving with you was quite special. Uh, in that, the the times when for the board sessions where we you had facilitated some of the, the mindfulness sessions was something that was really grounding in the work that we did. So I, I think that I, I hadn't experienced that on uh, other uh, organizations up until that point where, because I, I think typically you jump in and start <clears throat> doing all all the, the, the board business, but I, I think that it actually made things more effective uh, in that it was taking a moment to really ground and reflect on where people are at and just taking that moment of space to really focus. And I, I again, going back to that, that 80-20, it's when we think about some of the s- small actions that are taken, even just taking a few moments to do that can have uh, a tremendous impact on the, the the tone, the culture, the approach. And that was something that I, I, I'm quite grateful for to have experienced and uh, grateful to you for uh, also facilitating uh, the, those moments. And as well, just uh, serving with you on, on the board as general, uh, in general, and you know how thoughtful you were about the work that you did. In terms of things like uh, presenting together, I learned so many new tools uh, from you o- over the years. Where you know, I, I think that where my mind goes is that I I see a lot of life hack, you know, productivity tool things, and that that's generally where I have tended to to gravitate in terms of the tool sets that I find in Bookmark. And the tools that I learned from you were that some of that. The immediate ones that come to mind are things like the inbox focus one or inbox pause, the newsfeed eradicator are, are a couple of them. Like these are tools that were completely new to me and I, I still use to this day and have really helped hone in on my focus in terms of being able to have that tool fulfill that, that overall intention of spending less time on Facebook or social media and, and those things all those are just a couple I, I could go on, but there, there's a ton of tools that you introduced me to around the on the focus side of things. And also some additional the video recording tools. I, I think Bonjoro was new to me as well. And the, the intention planner, that I found really helpful because it was a very structured ritual and a way to think about the, the week ahead. And it became the steady rhythm of being able to write down what was on my mind for the week ahead and then that steady what do i need to put in the parking lot what do i need to reflect on and so i think up until that point i'd been doing it quite manually and as someone who has tried to journal uh, on and off over the years uh, you know that is a challenge because it's very freeform uh, journaling uh, and things so having something very structured uh, was helpful and being able to to keep that that steady rhythm. Thank you for all that you put out there into the world, because I, I know that I, it has had a direct impact and benefit to my day-to-day life as well. Awesome. I'm happy that I've been able to be of service and to have anything that I've shared be impactful and helpful for you and, and anyone else. I, I appreciate having you on the podcast. Really quickly, can you tell folks a little bit about what might be next for you? and where people can go to learn more about you and stay connected. Yeah. So in terms of uh, what next for me, uh, I'm, I'm quite enjoying the work that, that I'm doing uh, now and we'll continue on this track for connecting technology to, to make uh, an impact in the world and to help folks really help navigate that space uh, in general. So I'm always keen to, to learn and connect with folks around that. In terms of uh, where the best place is to connect with me, I would suggest uh, LinkedIn is uh, probably the best place to stay updated. Uh, whenever I find neat stuff online, I usually post it there. And as soon as I, I find those things, I put it on there. And I'm always grateful for if folks find interesting stuff as well, to send it to me that way as well. Awesome. There you have it, folks. That was and is Jason Shim, Chief Digital Officer, Canadian Center for Nonprofit Digital Resilience, also known as Cinder. Jason, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great. Thanks, Miko. I want to take a moment to tell you about a live virtual program to help change makers like you take better care of yourself while creating a positive impact in the world. It's a live virtual two-day interactive experience designed to help you increase your well-being so you can increase your well-doing. 
This retreat focuses on practices and strategies connected to the change framework for well-being while well-doing from my latest book, How to Thrive When Work Doesn't Love You Back. The framework addresses the U.S. Surgeon General's five essentials for workplace mental health and well-being. Learn more at mindfulchangemaker.org slash retreat. Again, that's mindfulchangemaker.org slash retreat. During the retreat, we tackle the inner work of things such as guilt about not being able to always get it all done, fear of setting boundaries, the anxiety of imposter syndrome, and adjusting to the world of hybrid work, among other things. We'll also tackle the outer work of things such as setting intentional goals, effective priority setting, especially when everything seems urgent and important, setting and protecting boundaries, and making space to rest and recharge in a sustainable way. When you sign up, you get support from a community of smart, heart-centered change makers just like you, and also one year of unlimited access to video lessons, handouts, and an invitation to return to any of the live monthly retreat sessions we host. Learn more at mindfulchangemaker.org slash retreat. That's mindfulchangemaker.org slash retreat. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Dear Mindful Changemaker podcast. Are you ready to finally prioritize your well-being so you can increase your impact in changing the world? Join the Mindful Changemaker community and take the next step on your journey to increase your well-being while well-doing. It's 100% free when you join at mindfulchangemaker.org slash join. Again, that's mindfulchangemaker.org slash join. Until next time, I'm Miko Marquette Whitlock. Take it one intentional moment at a time. Thank you.